Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. I think you should go a day in advance and sleep overnight in a sleeping bag outside the ground. Yes. Raising funds for distressed podcasters. <laughs> yeah. All right. Are we ready to go? We are ready to go. Can I just check a couple of things? Paddy, I think you have a tendency of maybe tapping the table. I'll tell you what, Paul, if I do that on this occasion... I'll just type sort of you a little message. Oh, you can. I might not see it. If you go like this and behave like a, a lunatic, okay. that's it. That's it. To be quite honest, the reason for it is I'm so nervous at working with... Schindler and Hope. Hello everyone, this is Colin Schindler, welcoming you to another edition of Football Ruined My Life. And today, along with the other old gits, as John Holmes, Patrick Barclay and I traditionally refer to by our female companions, well, anyway, I am, we are going to be talking about what we all recognise as Division 2. In recent years, it has gone through a series of gender reassignments and currently resides under the name of the Championship. In my opinion, a particularly ridiculous name, since the team that wins the Championship I've always regarded as the team that finishes first in the top division, which of course is now called the Premiership. In my own area of interest, I look at the number of first-class degrees given out by universities, the number of A-stars given out by A-level boards, and that strikes me similarly as grade inflation which, like all inflation, devalues what came before. Harumph, grumble, grumble. But actually, this grumbling conceals a more serious question, the essence of today's discussion. And we're asking, is the championship of 2023 better or worse than the second division of, say, 1963? Paddy has a season ticket at Craven Cottage, so he and I currently support teams in the top division. But in 1963, my team, Manchester City, had just been relegated for the first time in my lifetime into the second division. In 2023, John's team, Leicester City, have been escorted to their seat in the second tier. So let's start with you, John. Is life all the way down there better or worse than it was the last time you were there? It's slightly different. I still go to the games. I still enjoy the games. In my case, because late in my life, Leicester surprisingly won the Premier League and the Cup both of which I'd sort of given up hope of them ever having been able to achieve earlier in my life. They never really looked like winning the league bar once in 1963. That was the year they went for the double, but they fell apart at the end. A year that sort of scarred my life from there. I always felt being a football supporter, a bit like being in politics or anything else, ends in failure. So this year, am I as excited? Well, my son who got very depressed about us going down, took the view, oh, it was going to be terrible, this, that and the other. And I said to him, look, for most of my life, actually, we've been in the second division championship, call it what you like, first division it was at one stage. I quite like seeing players develop and younger players that come up from the youth team and break through. And quite often that's easier to do at a lower level. So I'm going to just try and enjoy it in the way I always did. 
we're not on match of the day. No one talks about us as much. But, hey, the games are the same. The crowds are actually bigger than they were when I went. And the play must be better because it is at all levels. There are a lot of players that are really good. But twas ever thus that with Leicester, if a player got really good, he got transferred to the big clubs. This season, we've lost Madison, we've lost Tielemans, and we've lost Harvey Barnes, one of whom, Harvey Barnes, came up from our youth team. In a sense, I've seen during my career Peter Shilton go, Gary Lineker go, Gary McAllister go, who came up and grew as players at Leicester. Is there any in the team that there is now? I hope so. And will I enjoy watching it? Of course I hope so. The game is still pretty good. The atmosphere is still pretty good. So I'm certainly not going to grumble. Paddy, do you think that the clubs in the second division in the 1960s were more capable of getting out of that division into the top division? Or is it harder now to get out of the second division into the first division? As I keep Yeah. I think it's harder to get out, even though it's three out of whatever it is, as opposed to two out of, if you go back to the 60s, two out of 22, you know. So obviously it was statistically harder to get out. But I think it's harder now to stay. If Leicester City can be, uh, despite the fact that they've won the two major trophies in quick succession, still a wee bit of a yo-yo club. You know, don't forget, Leicester City were in the third tier, John, correct me if I'm wrong, only, what, 10 years ago? Only for one season, the only time in their existence. Yeah, but a yo-yo club's quite wrong. I think Fulham's my club, I'm more of a yo-yo club. But even Leicester City can't build strong foundations on the two major trophies of English domestic football, plus a good showing in Europe, mustn't be forgotten, among their achievements. You know, that just shows how difficult it is. You might say, well, look at Everton. How the hell do they stay in the Premier League with the kind of teams they've been putting out the last few years? But by and large, it is very difficult to stay there. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because for every Leicester getting the shock of relegation, there's a Luton coming up. So it depends on your point of view. I do think, to answer the question actually you just asked John, I think I slightly prefer being in the championship or second division, to call it what you will, as a Fulham fan. And I'm not alone. And part of the reason for that is that last time we were in the championship, there was no VAR, which does kind of intrude on the live experience, in my opinion. Partly because of that and partly because you're winning more. I mean, the football that Fulham played last time we were in the championship, second division, call it what you will, was magnificent. I felt I was watching Barcelona in the Guardiola days. It was that good. I wouldn't say I'm complaining about being in the Premier League. I love it. Last season, we had very competitive matches against Liverpool and Man City at the cottage. They were great. They were proper contests. Could have gone either way. So I do think it has changed, though, from... And one good thing about the change from the old days when we were all in the same league is the quality of stadiums in the second tier of English football. Lots of clubs have rebuilt their grounds and made them more comfortable with the aspiration of getting into the Premier League. And that can only be good. Well, it can be good, but it can also be spending money you haven't got in the expectation of something you never achieve, in which case it has a financial implication. Yes, but it doesn't really matter because I would confidently say that with the possible exception of Germany, I don't think there's any country in the world that has a better supported second tier than England. I also think that 
what is encouraging if you look at the teams in the second tier now is the number of clubs that have at some point a premiership pedigree and I think that's a good thing. I think at the bottom end of the Premier League is very good because there is the turnover and there is the competition. Anybody can get relegated and anybody can get promoted. Those things are really important and they are very good still. My problem is at the top of the Premiership where the anti-competitiveness strikes, but it doesn't apply to the second division, which is why I think it's a jolly good division. And I also remember this, it doesn't feel that probably this way to John, or certainly to John's son at the moment, but when we were in, had our one season in the third division, whatever it was called at the time, the third tier, in 1998-99 season, the prospect of getting back to the, whatever it was called, the second division was called at the time, was Nirvana. You'd look forward so much to being in that division because from there it was not one step back to where we wanted to be. So if you look at it from below, the second division is a really attractive place to be. From above, it's not quite so good. A perfect example, if we go back to the olden days, was the one season Manchester United spent in the second division. That was definitely one of the most exciting Manchester United seasons between the Busby and Ferguson eras. Because under Tommy Doherty, they were playing the most wonderful, effervescent football, epitomised by the wingers, Coppola and Hill. So it was a great season. And bear in mind, Manchester United Stadium didn't hold as many as it holds now, but they still averaged 55,000 at home during that season. And huge crowds on every ground they visited. Yes, it was just unfortunate that that coincided pretty much with the advent of United for Hooligans. So that, that yes, was absolutely yeah. the time that it was starting. In compensation, on the field, the remarkable transition that happened in the second division that couldn't probably happen in the first was that Tommy Doherty had the freedom to do whatever he wanted mm. to get them back. And the terrible teams that United put out in the early 70s, the Jim Holton era, you know, we're replaced by this extraordinary, as you say, mobile team yeah, of yeah. not just Helen Cobble, but, but Stuart Pearson and Jerry Daly, Sammy McElroy. It was a very good team and it was different. It was a real pure footballing side, but effervescent as well, you know, with a lot of pace and vivacity. The question is then, does being in the second division allow managers to experiment more than it does in the first? Because the fear of relegation is so all-encompassing. Does that stop managers having the freedom to say, well, let's try this next week? I think that applies almost at all levels. I mean, what we saw last season was the the managerial casualty rate in the Premier League, because it was competitive, was alarming. I mean, clubs had three managers during the season. I mean, I know some of the clubs seem to swap managers on an incredibly regular basis. Watford, how many did they have the last time they were in the Premier League? Even Leicester, who are traditionally quite loyal to the managers, they hung on, but they swapped managers. Other clubs, you know, they were coming and going all the time. And in the second division of championship, it seems to be the rule now. If you don't get up, you get the sack. One of the things that's happened is there seem to be now, we've got a thing that certain people are Premier League managers and they seem to swap clubs the whole time. Immediately, a premiership manager gets the sack. The ones who seem to be mentioned in connection with the jobs are other premiership managers. Frank Lampard, Stephen Gerrard. Whereas in the second division or the championship, we have got managers who come on the way through. And that's deemed to be the only way you can actually now, as an English manager, 
become a Premier League manager is to actually win the championship or get promoted. Chris Wilder got to the Premier League through going through the divisions. Yes. Would he have been recruited? No. What used to happen was if a first division manager lost their job, you would look at those who'd done well in the third and fourth division, who is the best looking? Leicester recruited, I remember a long time ago, Jimmy Bloomfield, and they recruited Franco Farrell, both of whom had done well at a lower level, and both of whom did pretty well when they came to Leicester. If I was looking now as a chairman, and I'm looked on as an old fogey, but I would have been looking for Leicester at the guy who got Ipswich up, or the guy who got Plymouth up. Yeah. But that's no longer the case. When Brendan Rodgers left, they go for Dean Smith. Mm. Now, Dean Smith, he'd been with Villa and with Norwich and took them down. And then they give him the Leicester manager's job. I found that puzzling. Yes, it was puzzling. But I think a good example would be Sean Dyche, who went up with Burnley, went down with Burnley. Burnley didn't sack him. And they came back again. And he moved on to what could be argued is a club with more potential in Everton. But that's how it should work. But they sacked him in the meantime, didn't they? Yeah, but going back to our, one of our favourite topics, Brian Clough. Mm-hmm. Clough had no problems about winning the championship with Derby and mm-hmm. taking a job with the third division at the time, Brighton and Hove Albion, and then with the struggling second division side, Nottingham Forest. I don't think he thought he was demeaning himself by taking those jobs. They no. were an opportunity for him to show how brilliant he was. Yeah, Martin O'Neill. So Martin O'Neill started with Grantham, then Shepshed Charterhouse, then Wickham, then Norwich. Then he fell out with Robert Chase in the second division and came to Leicester in the second division. Then he was coveted by Leeds and so on. And then eventually, of course, he went to Celtic, then came back at the top level. So Martin had been one of those who had worked his way up from the bottom and was one of the best managers, in my opinion, of the early 21st century. Yes. Well, the fact is, has that changed now? We were talking about Gerard and Lampard as being you know, premiership managers. Is it now demeaning for them to be taking a job with a club that's in the second division as was the championship as is? I think they feel so. And of course, there is the money. These people were top players. They were on a lot of money. They were used to top conditions. They all say, I've served my apprenticeship. I've worked under so-and-so-and-so-and-so. They've seen that manager on the training field. They have not actually gone through all aspects of management. Neither, I think, do they adequately understand, in many cases, the problems of players who cannot do what they were able to do. Yeah. You know, somebody said to me last season about Brendan Rodgers, oh, he's a con man. I said, of course he's a con man. All managers are con men. Correct. They're trying to persuade an average player that actually he's a really good player. And I mentioned it to Martin O'Neill and he laughed and said, of course, Brian Clough was an enormous con man. He told John McGovern that he could be a superstar player in a sense. And it worked. Gracious me. And he took other players who hadn't been doing so well, like John Robertson, like Martin O'Neill, like Larry Lloyd, like Frank Clark, journeymen, as they say, and whoosh. They went up to the level of playing in European Cup finals and so on. They are con men. But he would have gained that knowledge, would he not, Clough, having worked at Hartlepool, who were hopeless. Yeah. You know, he got the Derby job because he got Hartlepool promoted. Hartlepool had hardly ever been promoted before that time. Now, 
there's almost like a class that if you're a first or second division, as they call it now, manager, you're never going to break through unless you go through with that club. The fact that the second division, as I keep calling it, because it's the easiest way to respond, is now no longer in the same administrative organisation as the first division. Is that part of the reason why the gap between the two divisions has stretched, or is it coincidence? It's the amount of money. The Premier League, it's the most successful league in the world at the moment, isn't it? We have to face that. The money coming in has actually improved the standard all over. And it's also now become the battlefield between the USA and the oil-rich countries. If you look at the top of the premiership table, they're either owned by Americans or they're owned by oil barons. Although in some cases there were Russian billionaires, but they've gone now. We were owned by a Thai retail tycoon. And that has spread downwards, hasn't it, now? Well, as you know, the very word owners sends me into hysterics. I mean, in my opinion, I'm sure I've said it before and I'll say it again, the only people who have an owner are animals or slaves. Football clubs should not have owners. Let's go back a bit to the 63 second division. Who owned football clubs when we were growing up? Were they not owned? I mean, how- No, they weren't described as owners. They were described as chairman. Or directors. Or directors. But they weren't perceived as people whose toys the clubs were, or part of whose financial engineering they are now in the case of the Americans. You know, I do feel it is partly a question of governance, that there isn't enough governance in the game and that there isn't enough control. This may sound a negative thing to say, that the clubs, the Premier League clubs, are far too wealthy and that the answer is not to make the second-tier clubs more wealthy, it's to make the Premier League poorer. The problem is now that the over-richness of the Premier League clubs, which was with great perspicacity referred to by Alan Sugar as juice economics, it's now becoming really, really silly. The amount of money that's simply pouring out of the game into the pockets of players who neither need nor want it, and their intermediaries in transfers who are completely unnecessary. Never mind prune juice and diarrhoea, they may as well build a great bonfire of half the money that comes into the Premier League and set fire to it. It's a question of heritage, isn't it? I think, and I felt when I was chairman, I was owner, but only a small part I put some money in. I never intended to make any money out of it. In fact, I told the other shareholders, by doing this, you will lose money. That's not what people say now about clubs. We were at the top of the second division championship or whatever you call it when I was doing that. I didn't say if we go up, you'll all become phenomenally wealthy or anything like that. Mm. And I felt that all I was actually doing was helping to preserve the heritage of the club. It was my club. I've been going since I was seven years old. I edited the programme. I've been the stadium announcer. I'd written on the club for the local paper. And now there I was sitting in the director's box. John, you weren't as big a part of the pre-match experience as Alan Birchinall, were you? You weren't in his class. No, and I'll tell you, (laughs) I was chairman. We got three games to go. And if we won two of these games, we were going to go up. Yeah. So we went up to Rotherham to watch us. Rotherham was about the third game to go. 
And Alan Birchinall, who's been a mate for forever, yeah. and I went in the same car. Um, when we went out, we got out of the car and Birch and I walked around the ground. And the supporters came out. Now, they weren't bothered about me. They wanted to talk to Birch. Mm. They weren't the least bit bothered about me. That's correct. I mean, uh, there was part of me thought, well, I bloody well put my money <laughs> yes. to, save, to save this club. You should know there is absolutely no thanks. There is no thanks. And, of course, I realised that. And I was only going to be chairman for a period. I had already made up my mind that that season was it. I was going to do it and then mm. go back happily to being just a supporter. Is it fair to say that you saw yourself as a steward, not a leader, someone who would take care of the club and try to pass it on in a slightly better state than you received it. That's what you saw yourself as, isn't it? Correct. Who owns a football club? When we grew up, there wasn't an ownership, really. No, and if, no. if anybody owned it, it was the supporters. In Germany and in certain places in Spain, there are systems put in place yeah. so that the supporters or members or whoever they are do actually own a majority of the club. The flip of that, of course, is at Barcelona, it was owned by the members. But then you get somebody taking over a short period of time, trying to show off to get re-elected, mm -hmm. and the whole thing busts. You know, they're in a terrible state. Actually, they appear to be back where they were, spending as much money as they were, which I can't quite work out. But maybe that's a good thing, because it is because of the membership. Those clubs, so we say, who reside pretty much permanently in the bottom half of the Premier League, do when they do go down, does that not give them a sense of release and relief? I'm picking up on John's point about one of his second division experiences that was so positive. And I remember the, the year that Kevin Keegan took over Manchester City. They struggled in the second division after Joe Royal relegated them. They struggled for a while. They signed Ali Benabia and Ayl Berkovic, and suddenly, the second half of the season, they barely dropped a point, and they played the most glorious football. And to watch them in the second division, yet winning 4-0 every week, was inspiring and thrilling. And then they went up to the first division, and they struggled like crazy, and they were losing 2-0 at home every other week. It was a much less attractive experience than being in the second division. Is that a general sense? We none of us like losing. And well, that's course, my question. Is losing compensated for by being in the Premier League or not? I supported a side when Leicester struggled in the second division for some time. And a lot of the football was pretty shocking. <laughs> and eventually they went down and they went through managers and all that sort of thing. Then there was a rebirth when Nigel Pearson came and they went up. We had a player called Andy King, who I suspect this record will never be beaten. He has a first division winner's medal, a championship winner's medal, and a Premier League winner's medal with the same club. Amazing. I don't know. I, I still feel, I suspect that when this podcast comes out, Fulham could be back in trouble again. And I won't want to go down. I won't be happy at going down. But once we've actually gone down, if we do then I won't be distressed. Even though we'll lose our best players, I still won't be distraught. Do you think that the pressure to be in the Premier League, as it now is, is so overwhelming that it somehow defeats the object? That it was never... Being in the second division in 1963 is not like being in the Championship in 2023, if you're not going up. 
because it wasn't such a terrible... We hadn't been consigned to Siberia. You didn't lose the players in the same way. Yes, right. We've now got this series of ledges. If you don't qualify for the Champions League, a player who's been playing at the next level down is persuaded that he should go to a side that's playing in the Champions League. And if you don't qualify for Europe and you're in the next phase, like Fulham are, your best players are persuaded they should go to a side playing in Europe. And if you go down to the Championship, as Leicester have, Madison goes, Barnes goes, and Tillemans goes. Immediately, bang, they're gone. And there is no doubt amongst people that that is what's going to happen. When we went down in 1969, reached the cup final, lost to some scruffy side from up north, and went down, we hung on to David Nish. We hung on to Peter Shilton. We didn't hang on to Alan Clark. And actually, most Leicester fans said, good riddance, he was yeah. a pain in the arse. But we hung on to our best players for two years. When we came back, Shilton and Nish were still there. Well, I can offer another one, which is that in 1963, when City were relegated, and I still remember the trauma, Peter Dobing went from City to Stoke City for about 35,000. And Alex Harley, who scored all the goals that year for City, went to Birmingham City for 42,500. Remember, yeah. it's very, very clearly. But in compensation, they signed Jimmy Murray and Derek Kevin, who I've said on this podcast before, were just fantastic for two years, scored mm. lots and lots of goals. So it wasn't a terrible thing. But those figures, 35,000 and 42,500, it was significant. It saved the club. It made them whole again. It sounds so ridiculously small and insignificant now. But a proper sum of thirty. £5,000 meant a lot to a club in 1963. So going into the second division was a blow, no question. But it wasn't the financial blow that it is now. And that, I think, is the difference. Yes. When I went to Manchester first, Colin, in the mid to late 60s, Manchester City were a second division team. And I saw them come up. And I saw Jimmy Murray play for... I didn't see Derek Kevin... But I saw Jimmy Murray, I saw Johnny Crossan. You know, every team used to have a schemer like yeah, Johnny Crossan. he was a schemer. And I enjoyed watching that second division team as much as I did, you know, the perhaps greater, well, definitely greater team that Joe Mercer took up to what would now be called the Premier League. Certainly in those days, I wasn't too bothered about the level. And the crowds were good. Well, no, I was part of the very famous 8,049. Oh, it's Swindon. The Swindon place, Swindon. I happen to know 18,512 people who were at that Swindon game. I've got the programme, Paddy. (laughs) And I've talked about it to Mike Summerby. I remember him scoring against us. He was playing for Swindon. We signed him the following summer. As his son did later, I think. As his son did exactly the same transfer later. I suppose I'm raising a flag for the Championship, I think it's been unfairly dismissed as an inferior league simply because it isn't the Premier League. And that gap has widened. And it's not just in terms of money, in terms of players. It's in terms of perception. Mm. That is my point. Somehow it is demeaning to be playing in the Championship when they should be playing or want to be playing so much in the Premier League. I don't think that was the case when it was a first division and second division and we're talking 40, 50 years ago. Probably not, but the crowds in the championship now, Leicester sold their season tickets out yeah. for this season. West Bromwich, Albion, 
Stoke City, all in either new yeah. or refurbished stadiums. Yeah. I've missed out, you know, when Wolves were in the championship, they were pretty well selling out around the 30,000 mark. Southampton, you know, they built a new stadium and pretty well fill it. Sunderland, 48,000 capacity, and they've got close to that a few times without being in the Premier League. I think we should be proud of English football's second tier. Yes, absolutely. Despite lamenting the gap between that and the top level, I think it's an exciting place to be. And if you doubt that, try Scotland's second tier. <laughs> okay. I agree with you. I would have to say that whatever we feel, the game has grown. The game is no longer confined to the working classes. The game is more popular worldwide in every way. And the second division, yeah, there are differences and so on, but we still get a lot of really good players. We get full grounds, we get great atmosphere, and it's exciting. The playoffs were a terrific invention, in my opinion. They actually make it more competitive because in the old days, sometimes it was very clear, even halfway through the season, those two well away, they will go up, that's the end of it. And it still is sometimes that the top two are well away. But then there's a real competition between third, fourth, fifth and sixth for who will play at Wembley. I've been to Wembley in playoff finals. I've lost them and we've won them. And it's exciting. No, I wouldn't disagree with that at all. I think that's absolutely true. What I think I would like to ask, though, is what would happen if somehow only one organisation was running all four divisions, as used to be the case. In other words, the Premier League either took control of all four divisions or the EFL took control of the Premier League. And there wasn't this administrative separation. What do you think would be the result? I think that's... (laughs) It's a bit like the distribution of money in a lot of sports. The Premier League is really run by the top clubs. They were facing, as they thought it, the top clubs deserting the league. That's what they were worried about. And the top clubs then got the FA to conspire with them to come up with this device, the FA Premier League. It's nothing to do with the FA, is it? You know, no. the FA in the first place said, well, this will help England win more competitions. No, it won't. No. <laughs> and you've got to go down to, I think it was 18 or 16 clubs to do that. And the season isn't going to be as crowded and so on and so on. No. And the big clubs have got a grip on it. You know, we've said this before. It's not like the States where you have a commissioner and the leagues are all powerful. But you still have promotion and relegation. I mean, I think that to answer Colin's question, the reunification of the administration of professional football in England and Wales would definitely be a positive thing. However, I don't think there's a chance of it happening because of what John's just said about the big clubs ruling it and wanting it that way. I can remember somebody told me when I was researching the life of Herbert Chapman nearly a century ago at Arsenal, and an early Hill Wood, who was the chairman of Arsenal at that time, whenever something was suggested at a board meeting, he said, yes, but what would be the effect on Doncaster? And I can't imagine many of the people who are involved in the administration of Premier League football now giving a <laughs> toss about what happened to Doncaster. Funnily enough, I can remember when negotiating a contract for Des Walker. Yeah. Des Walker was at Sheffield Wednesday. It was during this period when you could go abroad at the end of your contract for free, but it was going to be money if you stayed in the English League. 
And Des Walker was quite keen to stay at Sheffield Wednesday, but since he was their best player, he was also quite keen on being the best paid. Mm. Anyway, the negotiation went on and on, and I was in a negotiation with the chairman. I said to him, this will mean that this offer will mean that Des is the top paid player at the club. And he said, yes, absolutely. And then the next day, Des rang me up and said, he wasn't telling the truth. <laughs> and I said, why? He said, because Benito Carboni's on this. So we then wrote them a letter saying, sorry, guys, he's going to go abroad at the end of the season. Or he will go where he wants and will challenge about whether you're entitled to a fee. And then I got this enraged call saying, people like you are going to send clubs like Rother and bust. And I said, hold on, what have Rother got to do with this? You know, (laughs) they did talk about it, but they only brought it into question when it affected them, what they saw as their status quo. We talked about the reunification of the football leagues, as it were, as a remote possibility. But here is a possible scenario, and it may not come about in our lifetimes, which are of limited duration. But, you know, in 30, 40 years' time, I wouldn't be at all surprised to see the following, which is that the European Super League returns. It does take away those six, eight clubs from Britain who don't know where Doncaster is and have even less interest. And it does mean that if they go off to the Super League, the rest of them, and that includes decent premiership clubs like Aston Villa and places like that, and they form, along with the second division, third division and fourth division, into a new set of divisions, in which they don't have any particular desire to be getting into the European Super League because they'll never match the terms that the European Super League is formed in. But it would bring those clubs together again. It would lessen the division between the whatever the top division is called and whatever the second division is called. And the Manchester clubs and the Liverpool clubs and the London clubs will have gone. Can you see that happening? Can you see it happening at all? No, I can't. The big clubs would see that as going backwards. They would say that they are producing a better product now. The improvement of grounds, customer experience, the development of merchandising, they would say that is progress and the way forward in the world. And the fact that this has become such a powerful product around the world in terms of television, they would say that that was a backward step. I think that the future of the game is largely a question of whether the World Super League will be based in Saudi Arabia, the United States or somewhere else. I think the world that we're looking at, a lovely world of getting on a train and travelling two hours to an away match or even better, walking to a home match, is great and I cherish my memories of it. But that is not how the powers that be see the game at all. They see it as a televised product. I think, you know, football should be a localised experience and it will remain so. We will go and support our local team on a muddy field, but not in large numbers. And we won't have the dream that was enacted by Wimbledon FC, the now defunct Wimbledon FC, when they went from being basically semi-professional to FA Cup winners. Yes. That will, I'm afraid, have died. Because if they do win an FA Cup, it will be an FA Cup for which Manchester United, Chelsea, Liverpool and Manchester City did not even bother to enter. Well, I'm going back to Manchester United again for a minute, but I did think that the decision that the club took when it went off to play in the World Club Championship was in South America somewhere. 
and they decided not to enter. Shamefully, that was at the behest of the organisation charged with representing the whole game. It was the FA who told them to do that. And it was a very shameful episode in our footballing history, but not one that Manchester United were wholly to blame for. My point about United was not that they shouldn't have gone and played that those games, but I didn't quite see. They had such a wonderful squad. They could have put out a second team that would have played in the third round and almost certainly have won, and they could just have carried on. That's a fair and, point. But opting out seemed to be a terrible decision to have made. I share the shame because I was one of the journalists who went out to cover that tournament. It was a rather a pointless exercise all round by the champions of England. I had a bloody good time, though. The sun was shining. It was January. Oh, we're all thrilled about that, buddy. We're really pleased about that. It just justifies the entire experience as well. Thank you very much to Patrick Barclay. Thank you very much to John Holmes. This has been a discussion on the merits or otherwise of the championship and the old second division. I'd be very interested to know, as we all are at all points, what our listeners think about it. And they can tell us their experiences and tell us what they believe has been the value of the changes made between the second division and the championship by writing to us at footballruinmylife at gmail.com. That's footballruinmylife, all one word, at gmail.com. It's goodbye and thank you for listening. We'll see you all next time on the next edition of Football Ruin My Life. Now.